Hi everybody, it's Dan here with a short introduction to this episode that began life on our Patreon um, about the Walter Benjamin Escape Town, a crazy project, quite frankly, <laughs> from 2019 um, that was designed in homage to the late great philosopher, writer, thinker, hashish smoker, uh, Walter Benjamin. Um which I think got several things wrong <laughs> along the way, as you'll hear in the episode. Uh, it's an episode uh, that Cash and I enjoyed a great deal. We're huge fans of Walter Benjamin. His work on memory and history underscores a lot of what we do um, and the way that we approach uh, cultural and material history and tat. Um, he was a man that loved tat himself and wrote a great deal about the aura surrounding particular objects. Uh, but yeah, this is an episode that takes us from uh, the ball pit bars of Shoreditch to uh, the small town of Port Boo where, um, in, in Catalonia, where Walter Benjamin tragically lost his life in 1940. It's, some, it's an episode in which we talk about gentrification, about the experience economy, about what it means uh, when factories are turned into escape rooms or other kind of infantilising projects but it's also an episode with a lot of uh, laughs and joy <laughs> we're not curmudgeons throughout uh, I'm pleased to say um, and it's an episode we're really fond of so I hope you enjoy um, I also want to just take this opportunity to say that thank you to all of our patrons who've been supporting us um, in making cursed objects over the last year it's only four pounds a month to subscribe and you get these uh free uh, bonus episodes. We'll be back with a brand new episode for our patrons and for everybody on the main feed very soon uh, about spooky season and pumpkin season and what fall slash autumn slash the harvest uh, means to us in the 21st century. But until then, please enjoy this episode and uh, do support us on, on our Patreon if you, if you can afford to. You will get those free episodes. It's only £4 a month. And if you can't, then don't worry, we're going to keep making episodes for everybody um, free to air on your regular uh, podcast feed as well. Um, either way, do leave us a review, tell a friend, tweet about us, join us on Instagram or Twitter, uh, or just yeah, tell a mate on WhatsApp. Love you lots. Uh, from me and Cash, take care. Bye. Welcome to another episode of Cursed Objects. My name is Dan Hancocks. I am a journalist, author, and enjoyer of gazpacho and other cold soups. And my name is Dr. Kasha T, and I am an erstwhile historian <laughs> and uh, full-time uh, bather. <laughs>
bather. Big fan of a bathe. Yeah, it's warm. It is warm. It's for warm. Those, for those of us, it's currently warm. And the people... window is closed. <laughs> yeah. For optimum sound, <laughs> sound yeah. quality. The things we do for for optimal like sound production quality. But it... it's okay because we're having a party. We are having a party. <laughs> um, let's clink. Cheers. Cheers. This is to a man we like to call Walter Benjamin. Uh, except when we call him Walter Benjamin. Or Daddy. <laughs> All right, Cash. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the late... You usually call him Daddy, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not on air, Cash, come on. Um, it is, I just it... hotted you up on air. <laughs> you did, you absolutely did. Uh, Walter Benjamin, it would be his 130th birthday today, which would make him the oldest man in the world, Woo! which would raise all sorts of other questions about... Uh, history that I'm sure he'd love to answer. Can you imagine him at 130? What would his memory, what would, you know, how would how would his sort of, you know, the imperative shaping his memory of time and place and people and politics change when he was 130? Actually, your long-term memory is supposed to get better really? as you get older. Like a tree. You can't remember what you did yesterday, but you remember oh, right. the lunch you had in 1974. Right, That's right. That's happened with my grandma. I just felt like Walter Benjamin would be so curmudgeonly. He was pretty. He was pretty much there as a man in his thirties, <laughs> from what I've read. Sort of. He was an old young man. Exactly. Yeah. The reason we're talking about Walter Benjamin and toasting him is not just because he is the main subject of this episode. His not all of his life and work, because you'd need several podcast series in which to do that. Mm. But uh, prompted by a particularly cursed object that uh, is well, it could sort of contains him. If you haven't listened to Cursed Objects before uh, and you're somehow hearing this on our Patreon or you're hearing it later on our main feed, Cursed Objects is a podcast in which we take on cultural studies and kind of popular history with an eye to the objects that sort of explain that history. So, so we're, we, we're material culture based. Yeah, I would we are. Say. We are not plant based. Material we're, culture no, based. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, I mean, I'm plant based sometimes, but today I'm, mir- I'm material <laughs> culture. Yeah, yeah. So I had some vegan food at the weekend. Um, I actually eat margarine. <laughs> oh, don't eat margarine! Oh my god. Yeah, that's apologies to all of you that eat margarine. Oh, I spent so much of my childhood eating margarine, and you know, both my mother and I had the same realization much later that like butter's actually better for you yeah <laughs> oh, you um, wasted your years i know i could have been <laughs> eating butter by the fistful as i do now on a regular basis um what anyway, image you playing? sorry yeah that was that was not my most delicate of phrasing <laughs> so on cursed objects we you know we take we, we take a different object every week this is the reason Walter benjamin is sort of like just the sort of god uh, figure like looming above a lot of what we do here is because he was very into cursed objects himself. The arcade mm-hmm. project is uh, one of, like his, you know, arguably his masterwork involved walking through the arcades of uh, early 20th century Paris and sort of trying to read history, what I guess later came to be called sociology, the culture of ordinary life, the the kind of behaviours of ordinary life through objects, and often objects that have been thrown away. In fact, mm. particularly, he was interested in objects that had been discarded, uh, that had fallen out of fashion. You know, the, mm. the Parisian arcades, when he was writing about them, were not in their first flush of youth. Like They were the equivalent of the decaying shopping mall mm. uh, of the 21st century. You know, when you go into somewhere like, well, RIP Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre, because uh, it closed down now, but similar sort of vibe of like here are here were the desires of a population as mediated through goods sold for profit mm. 
and these goods are not not really wanted anymore <laughs> you know and that's and that's what we do right cash we like we are interested in in we the objects we, yeah. that everyday folks leave behind we are wombles yeah. ultimately <laughs> you especially because Me, of your football team i didn't want to get into football but yes yeah, so, you know womble till we're i die here now. We're here now. yeah we are i have many photos with hayden the womble in his wimbledon kit and i'm very proud of them all anyway the themes today because i think you could take a water benjamin episode in a million different directions we're going to Try and keep it just a few hundred thousand in the interest of like succinctness. Um, lucky listeners. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be so <laughs> succinct today. The the things that we want to talk about today are sort of themselves quite ra- wide ranging, but they sort of speak to like the heritage industry, the experiential economy, which is like mm. doing stuff as an experience. You know, when you see those like gift packages for going in a hot air balloon or like, mm. you know, Learn how to sew your own tree or that sort of thing. Um, but also immersive theatre, the gamifying of cities, escape rooms specifically, um, and the sort of infantilization of social life that you see through like, oh, here's a ball pit in, in Shoreditch for like mm. young professionals because young professionals can't just sort of sit and have a drink anymore. They've got to actually be playing darts or like going on a, <laughs> I don't know, like a space hopper or something like while both, they're doing it. Like, you both, know, us, both of us are all quite very curmudgeonly bo- in this sense. Yeah, yeah. Though. Like we're both like very much in agreement that like, I don't want to fucking play ping pong with you. Uh-huh. I just want exactly. to celebrate Walter Benjamin's birthday <laughs> with you in my room recording yeah. an episode of Cursed Objects. Is that so much Exactly. Lost? Stop trying to make me play board games. Stop trying to make me play Splat the Rat. <laughs> was Splat the Rat before your time? This is like pre-internet. Is it the one where you hit a thing Yeah, it's with like a from mallet? a summer fate. Exactly. Mm. Splat the Rat bars, if you haven't visited Shoreditch recently, are all the rage. They're just, that's all. Christ. The, <laughs> I mean, they're, Christ alive. They're, they're, they're not, but they could be, plausibly. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about sort of, I mean, you know, the episode title is The Walter Benjamin Escape Room. As you're about to find out, that's not a joke. That is a real thing. And we're about to find out why that's so horrible. But first, today's cursed object, the object that mm. I brought in today, is a, a postcard. It's a bit meta because it is a postcard displaying an action figure, a Walter Benjamin action figure that doesn't actually exist. Wow. The postcard okay. does. Right, okay. And the action figure does not. So like some okay. some artist who is clearly into the, you know, the great sort of 20th century philosophers, um, and I think 19th as well, did a bunch of like jokey sort of action figure kits for people like Nietzsche and Spinoza and Walter Benjamin and Adorno. And uh, the Walter Benjamin action figure that, again, does not exist because this is a very confusingly mm. meta episode... But that's what Benjamin would have wanted. It is. He would have loved the matter, I think. I think you're right. <laughs> like, is this, you know, and also, like, this is just an image now that's being reproduced, so it sort of speaks to some of the stuff in the, mm. you know, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, another very interesting uh, and seminal Walter Benjamin essay, which we've discussed on other episodes and probably will continue to do. The Walter Benjamin action figure includes, apparently, a library card and a notebook, a copy of the Arcades Project, his masterwork, a pair of rolled socks, eight <laughs> mechanically reproduced sounds. Obviously, we don't know what they are because this this object, this, this action figure doesn't actually exist, but it was an idea that someone had. Um, and a hidden button on the base, which makes him light up with an aura effect, wow. which is which is a nice touch, is I it not? Like when did we talk about the aura? Do we, if we want to point listeners to another episode? We spoke about the aura in our um, episode on uh, religious iconography. We did. Yeah, religious yeah. tat. Religious yeah. tat, that's Have right. Have a listen to that if you have That, that was great. Um, I think that one of his si- sounds would just be like a sigh. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a great suggestion. <laughs> what would Walter Benjamin sounds be? Just like, yeah. Get back to us listeners, I'm like sure you've a got sort thoughts. Of a, 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 a sort of a despair. 
Just the sound of despair. Uh, I know I wanted to despair when I heard about the Walter Benjamin escape town. Right. So So this this was news that broke in 2019. And it broke on Christmas Eve, which is sort of like almost numerological kind of synchronicity of like significant dates and significant moments Mm. that really... I think fits somehow with Walter Benjamin's philosophy. Like there's a lot of synchronicity that goes on here. And the fact that it should be on the eve of this day of great celebration that they announce something so horrendous as a Walter mm-hmm. Benjamin escape room feels apt somehow. You know, it's apt as well. It feels synchronous and appropriate that we had already decided to record an episode today and it was only latterly that Kasha discovered it was Walter Benjamin's birthday. Like, how did you even work that out? Like uh, someone tweeted about it. Oh, I see. Right, and you're like, oh my god, that's <laughs> another, so weird. Another Walt Benjamin. Th- those fan. moments of synchronicity where you're like, that's so weird. That makes that makes mm. a certain amount of sense. Almost if it's guided in the stars, is quite a is a vibe you get into the more you read Walter Benjamin's that. work. Like, yeah, I know, do feel a little bit like this episode's going to be peppered with me being like, Walter ben- Benjamin would have loved that. <laughs> well, I mean, we're both wearing our WWWB uh, <laughs> uh, bracelets, so D. I've missed a deal. Never mind. <laughs> so yeah, on the twenty fourth December, twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. news broke of a twenty four hour Walter Benjamin escape town, which was called Port Boo nineteen forty. Port Boo is a town just over the Spanish border, or in Spain, in Catalonia, mm-hmm. just over the border from France, just right in the foothills of the Pyrenees. I'm just going to read from the article in English, the only one in English that reported on this, which was the one that we all exploded with, like, rage. just, yeah, <laughs> rage and just, like, dismay and ennui, basically. What the article said was, uh, this this musician, notable musician, and a former local councillor, Francesc Tito Ribera, uh, set up an escape town, an experience similar to an escape room, but lasting almost 24 hours and including accommodation, dinner and breakfast. The game was set in night or would be set in 1940, and the aim is to escape Port Bou, this this town in, in just in in Catalonia, and help Walter Benjamin to do so as well, help him escape amid Francoists and Nazis who were coming for him. Walter Benjamin was Jewish significantly. The price, including, I mean, he was Jewish. He was also like a Marxist intellectual who was had been interned already at this point by the Nazis. Uh, he was on the run from the Nazis and illegally escaped into technically neutral Spain which was run by Franco at that point but with the idea that he could then go on and escape to America uh, with his life so this game this like experiential game where you're like you're not sitting around a a board game table if you don't know what sort of an escape room is it's a thing that's cropped up in cities across the west in the last few years it's um it's essentially like the crystal maze if anyone's mm. old enough to remember that tv program where you have to like complete some tasks and get out using kind of collaborative methods in your brain mm. and possibly your body to sort of jump over things um, or, you, or you like uh, do like puzzles, right? So yeah. you're in like a room, and then yeah. there's like you've got to complete this task, and then this task, against and then the you clock. can against the clock, and then you can get into the next room. And it's quite like space. It can be quite space uh, dense in the mm. sense that like all you need is three rooms or four mm. rooms, and then that is enough for you to move from one space to the next, the next, yeah. right? So it feels like there's a lot of pressure, tasks, yeah. things to do, but actually it's not like you need. A vast amount of space, which really suits in cities where space is is expensive, absolutely right? yeah, and it's I mean it, the the rise of the experiential economy is something that I think is really fascinating, and how that kind of speaks to the fact that cities don't make things anymore, and that 
people are bored with just going out and, you know, people with disposable incomes who can afford to live in cities mm. Wait, need you, new forms of entertainment. People don't just want to sit in pubs like me and you and think about what to Benjamin. I know, it's tragic. But they, they need to read more philosophy. They, they, need, they, they need to go to a, like, an epi- like, to watch Back to the Future Part 2, but do so, like, in a fucking spaceship or something like that, you know, while... while People, while like Michael J. Fox, like talks to them live or something. Um, you know, as you as as Kasha warned, we are going to be quite curmudgeonly today. They know, not, but not entirely. We're going to try and see if there's some redemptive, blessed tendency in mm. in all these things. But for now, Walter Benjamin would approve. Just saying, yeah, to look for the good in the bad and mm. so on. This Walter Benjamin Escape Town prompted such uproar because I know probably should have mentioned this already. Like. In escaping from the, in attempting to escape from the Nazis, Walter Benjamin, with two other people, and he's already very a very weak man who's like physically like been quite broken by internment by the Nazis already, um, in France, managed to get as far as the Marseille and the border needs to keep going because um, the occupation of France is, you know, making it ever more dangerous for people who are both um, Jewish. And also people who are on the you know Marxist left, and he's both of these things, as well as you know sort of prominent, as well as a prominent critic, you know an intellectual, the sort of person the Nazis would very much like to wipe out. He walks over the this actually quite short walk through the mountains, the which has now been christened the Camino Walter Benjamin, like the part the Walter Benjamin path mm. through the mountains. I've looked into do, doing, like, I'm going to do this mm. at some point, which raises its own questions because in a way, like, I'm gamifying his fucking, you know, perilous attempted escape from the Nazis. Benjamin and his, you know, his two compatriots who were trying to escape into Spain so that they could not be, you know, put, sent to a concentration camp, make it to Port Bou. They have to walk through the night. Benjamin's so sort of feeble at this point that, like, it takes two attempts to do a fairly... You know, it's like five or six hours, I think, to walk through the mountains, obviously trying not to get caught by border guards. Makes it to Port Boo. They check into a hotel that night. Um, they It seems that they got the news that they're going to be turned over. The Spanish authorities have found them and they're going to send them back to France and therefore probably to his certain death. Mm. And he takes, uh, I think it's a cyanide pill, some kind of poison that he's packed with him. A lot of the... A lot of the people, refugees who were on the run from the Nazis at this point took poison with them mm. um, to avoid, you know, a fate worse than death, in inverted commas, if you, if you consider it that. Um, so, he, so Walter Benjamin takes his own life in, in Port Boo. The horrendous irony, the, the, way, the way that, like, synchronicity and coincidence works against him in this moment is that they had just changed the laws. Like, if, I, as far as I remember reading about this, if he'd arrived in Spain one day earlier... He would have been given leave to remain there and he would have been able to stay and sail on to America. If they'd arrived one day later, the same would have been true. But there was a series of changing regulations going on that basically meant that they arrived in Port Boo in Spain, in Catalonia, and were like, fuck, the jig is up. We mm. are we are done for. He took his own life. It's extremely, extremely horrible and sad that he felt necessary to do so, given that he actually probably could have been okay and 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 made it to the, you know... The safety of like an allied country of, of, to the US. So to turn that into a, a, a twenty-four hour immersive experience that mm-hmm. costs, um, I think it says one hundred and forty-five to one hundred and ninety euros per person uh, for groups of up to six people, is extremely bloody tasteless. Because mm-hmm. it, what it's saying is like 
let's let's make it into a game. I mean, it's a step away from having the Anne Frank escape room, basically, mm. right? It's, you know, here is someone who died essentially because of, you know, the Nazi conquest of, of Western Europe and, you know, felt it necessary to take his own life. Turning that into a game is is beyond obscene. What happened next after uh, the 24th of December 2019 was that everyone kicked up a huge fuss about it. They realised it was horrendously offensive and like, start, and the idea was just like shut down, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't cancelled. The people that were going to do it were like, have we completely misjudged this? Oh, we have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. slow retreat out into the hedge, basically, Homer yeah. Simpson style. You know, it wasn't... I think I remember when we were sharing this on Twitter at the end of 2019, we were, it was just everyone was just in complete consternation that they'd think that was an appropriate thing to do. Um I think we want to move on from that though and like talk about sort of why this idea jars so much and like and I why guess- on one level like maybe it does fit with something that Walter Ben like like try and looking at trying to look at it from a forgiving point of view and under and sort of remembering that Walter Benjamin's work was so often about cities, about towns, about public space, about the streets and the squares, about what happened outside the domestic space the way that people interact with each other in the real material world. Mm. And, you know, maybe, like, the word gamifying is almost always used pejoratively, but, like, he, you know, he's not a philosopher. He's a philosopher whose work was, like, not always based in the abstract, but really based in the real world. He was interested in the real world, in, like, the material world of objects and of space, public space, and and uh, in buildings, in in fashion, in art, in objects, in, in tangible things. Okay, so I kind of want to offer some some thoughts, right, on that mm. specifically. So I think that there is something going on, and, like, I know that this is my classic of just putting the politics of and then a word, right? But there sure. is there is a politics... What is it this time? There is a politics of commemoration at yeah. work here that underpins yeah. why we feel both affronted, but also basically how we look at this as an event, right? So so there is a walk in, like, around, around Poor Boat, right? There is a walk that you can go on where you mm. download an app and you can follow this trail. Mm. You mentioned it earlier and you said that you wanted to go on it. Mm. I have a friend who has been on it many times. Mm. That falls into the category of commemoration, right? Mm. That is, like, how do you think about the movements and the intentions of Walter Benjamin, right, during that moment, that is a way of using space mm. and using history um, and context as a way of understanding or thinking about a specific traumatic past in history, mm-hmm. right? And it's not just that he was a philosopher, it's also that he was a victim of the of the Holocaust, right? Yeah. That he that is the kind of duality here, right? Mm. And I think that something like an escape room or an escape town. I think the idea of gamifying is really crucial here because mm-hmm. it takes away a specific type of engagement and replaces mm. it with a very different type. It's not, yeah, I totally see what you mean. And I think it's really good and useful to like think about it in terms of what different types of commemoration look like from, you know, and this is something that you, Kasha, are like an expert in and have worked with the Holocaust Educational Trust at a great length and stuff, that... You know, there's such a range of different ways of being in a space and in, engaging in sort of either a, an act of commemoration or just like learning, you know, head, mm-hmm. historical education. And that can range from standing in front of a statue, trying to read a plaque mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to understand. And often actually, you know, 
per the recent uh, kind of controversies over things like the Edward Colson statue, often you don't really learn much at all about wh- mm-hmm. who that person was and what they did. They'll probably just say some dates and when it was put up and who the artist was. To this whole range of rather more involved, Experiential. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, like broadly in in historical research, we're thinking more about like affective engagement, so like how people engage in an emotional way with mm. like practices of commemoration. So like, and how those practices change. So before uh, you would go to something like the cenotaph, or maybe it'd be more mm. formulaic and structural. Whereas like more recently, you're seeing more intimate, personal, and artistic. Um, kind of renderings of forms of commemoration. So uh, the kind of sea of poppies that was at the Tower of London that oh, kind of strikes, strikes jumps, jumps to my mind. You yeah. know, that was then also exported around the UK in different guises. This idea of like cascading poppies is a way of. Did they um, move it around the country? Sorry, I didn't realize. No, that. I mean it wasn't that. It that in and of itself, yeah. I don't think was moved around. But that style of having mm-hmm. buildings. I know when I was in Belfast, there was although the poppy means something very different. Um, kind of in a sectarian way in in, mm. um, in Northern Ireland. But there is certainly a kind of more of an emphasis on like experiential commemoration, especially as we move further away from events, right? So we uh, try to engage more in, a, in an emotional way. So this is what I've mentioned another time, you know, the temporal relevance paradigm <laughs> that I've written about, about how we... the yeah, old uh, TRP. TRP, yeah. About how when we move further away from events, mm. um, but they're still really important to like a national type of commemoration, how we still make those histories engaging. So like the First World War, for example, Mm. is so far removed from us now. You cannot imagine what life was like during that time. Mm. It is, you know, like a hundred years ago. It's so different. Life was so different. So how do we still make that relevant if it's important as a national story that the nation, however Mm. that might be defined and described, still thinks that's important? And I think... I'm just going to like offer some thoughts here that like with the Walter Benjamin escape town Mm. and for example, maybe in contrast with the walk, right, is that with the Walter Benjamin escape town, I think, okay, so broadly. The the problem's levity, right? It's like it's it's automatically suggesting this isn't about somber reflection. I think that's why people take events, right? And, And rather this should be fun. Yeah, like, it should a, be. I so, mean, if it's about affect, those those two contrasting emotions yeah. are like, yeah, like a somberness versus a jollity. Well, I think there's a really careful tension between when is a history so far away that we can play in it? Uh-huh. And these are debates Ooh. that really were shaped by the 1980s. Yeah. So um, in the 1980s, you see this, you know, we've spoken about this in our Be Sad and Shut Up episode. There was mm. this explosion of experiential history in what we now would think of as like heritage sites, although that is a really amorphous word that like captures so many different things, right? But what... Can you give us an example of, so I know what you mean, but the like the Blitz experience. Blitz experience, yeah. the Jorvik Viking Centre. Mm. Um, they're, they're kind of examples of trying to take people back in time, right? So using smells and using sounds. smells and, and sounds, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like the bench would shake when the bomb falls and yeah. that kind of thing. So, you know, there was a real emphasis during that time on trying to experience particular pasts as a way of uh, both kind of teaching, as educating, mm-hmm. but really trying to get people to engage with specific pasts. And I think often people feel like, I mean, look, this is why I'm interested in it, right? Because there is a tension here between how we learn about the past and also what are the appropriate ways of learning about it? Because mm. a lot of people in museums, for example, behind the Blitz experience or Jorvik Viking Centre will say, okay, but people aren't going to pick up a book right. or they're very rarely going to engage with it, but we're inspiring an engagement with history, right? I mean, to be fair, a lot of these experiences are 
more sophisticated now, obviously, than they were in the 1980s. A lot yeah. of them fell out of favor as well. So like the Blitz experience doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But you know, a lot of, this was like really quite um, dominant in terms of how people understood the past for a while. But for me, I think what I find really fascinating about this is that I think it demarcates a very specific type of engagement with a very specific type of history. So if you, um, and it kind of asks the question, whose histories can we play with? Can mm. we cosplay? And mm. whose histories can we not? And I think that, you know, I'm not asking that in a kind of Jordan Peterson, like, oh, <laughs> oh, right, right. So you can be you can be a prostitute in the 18th century if you're Jack the Ripper's victim, but you can't be Walter Benjamin. I'm not talking about power dynamics necessarily here. What I'm mm. talking about is the fact that specifically in Europe, um, I think around the time of the millennium, right, there was a shift in collective memory in terms of how Europe came together as a, as a space, as an ideological place, right? How do you tie together all of these nations that have historically tried to murder each other and also tried to murder its Jewish population? You, sorry, you think this happened around the turn of the millennium? One hundred percent. Yeah, in terms why? of because that was when that's so, when the euro comes in. Well, yeah, there <laughs> is a there is a real emphasis on how um, how you get these because there was also an emphasis on EU expansion during that mm. time. Well, not EU expansion, but it was the fall of fall of communism, fall of the Soviet bloc, and suddenly there are all of these nations who were just like on the edge of what was then considered Europe. You know, now Eastern Europe, who wanted to join, but a requisite, a kind of prerequisite of that was a. I mean, Tony Jutt uses the phrase that the Holocaust was a European entry ticket. Mm -hmm. um, so a super evocative phrase. And I'm not getting wow, at yeah. here that it's not just about acceptance of the Holocaust. It's about the idea that, like, there was personal culpability among all of the people of Europe mm. for perpetrating the Holocaust. And only it was like a collective unifying memory. So, for example, they, they you couldn't use... Uh, you couldn't use uh, the end of colonialism, the end of empire, because it hadn't really ended because it's still pursued in neocolonialism. That's not to say that anti-Semitism hadn't, hadn't and doesn't continue, doesn't uh, still exist, right? What it's saying is that during the 90s specifically, it was a usable past by which to create a kind of shared collective geopolitical identity. The Holocaust. Um, yeah, it, uh, right. not just the Holocaust, but uniting against the Holocaust. Right. And it was also during a time of the Rwandan genocide, yeah. uh, genocide in Bosnia yeah, and, yeah, and Kosovo. Yeah. And, you know, there was a real uh, sense that something must be done to stop this, to stop the murder well, and also, of, of people, and, right? And, I mean, yeah, if you have, like, contemporary genocides occurring in the 1990s, which you do, then looking back and saying... I thought we said never again, essentially. Essentially, yes, like, exactly uh, that. We said never again. Yeah. What do we stand for here? And obviously, yeah. like Europe, I think Europe's relationship with the the war in the now former Yugoslavia, in particular, like yeah, you know, there's a sense of like there's there's a land war in Europe again. There's massacres going on in Europe again. What was this all about? You know, yeah. what was the post 1945 settlement? about the formation of the United Nations and, you know, yeah. eventually the European Union. But I think that that's what's kind of, I think that's kind of what's underpinning some of the response, I, I think, maybe to the Walter Benjamin escape town, mm. is that not only was he a famous philosopher, but I think the fact that there is still a very important usable past, which is a unite, uniting against the Holocaust, against genocide, mm. makes this a past that, we cannot cosplay in because it right. is simply too, too barbaric, mm. too present, 
too um, important to yeah, just yeah. cosplay, right? Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think that a lot of people don't necessarily see that in other parts. I think I mean, that's a good thing. I think it's let's important. Let's think of some counterexamples. So, like, I mean, these may be hypothetical because they're off the top of my head, so apologies. But, like, it's hard to imagine in, say, the UK anyone objecting to a cowboys and indian sort of experience right, right? There like we go. some i think some people rightly would because they'd be like oh you're talking about the massacre of like native peoples of, of you know the north american continent over a sustained period but i do um, think those histories lol, are changing you know, and i yeah, think that's yeah. really important no, i think that's a good thing yeah you know? absolutely that like in america i think there is more of a kind of awareness about like you can't just do cowboys and indians because actually yeah. it demarcates like mass genocide and murder yeah right? and it's not lols yeah know? which obviously when we were children you and i growing up in in, mm-hmm. in, in london it well, absolutely was part of the playground, sort of. Yeah. And, you know, we'd watch, I, well, I'd certainly watch on TV, like, Cowboys and Indians type TV shows. I can't remember what any of them were called now. But that was, like, a big part of my childhood. Like, you know, it's not the idea that that would be controversial mm-hmm. and that wouldn't be a suitable subject for cosplay, the the Wild West, in mm. very commas. It would I, seem absurd. Because I've been thinking about this. Um, shout out again, like, Nick Bano for, like, his amazing Twitter feed that I just think is brilliant. But he um, put up something really recently that was about a hotel. I think it was Mm. a hotel that had been used. um, No, sorry. It was a courthouse Mm -hmm. that had had prisons in it, jails, that had been used as a hotel for a Mm. number of years. But then it actually turned out that the home office fairly recently had uh, started housing housing refugees who it was i think maybe processing for detention and now possibly or, deport, deportation yeah, deportation yeah, all, yeah. Ma- all manner of like horrible mucky things that like so many people were saying this is traumatizing for a lot of the people that yeah, are, yeah. are living there or all that that you have housed there and i've been thinking about that case why is that so uncomfortable right it's a repurposing of space surely that all mm. space is space in london space is tight but it's not about that it's buildings because it have feels, meaning man <laughs> exactly and because it feels so close yeah. and not only does it feel close but it's crazy to think that for a number of years people were cosplaying as as prisoners mm. and then actually people who were being deported as yeah. but essentially if you're being deported you are a prisoner because yeah. you are illegal right in the yeah. eyes of the law yeah. even though you shouldn't be so it's like one of these like uneasy slippages i think between these between these things yeah i mean the i I think it really is worth saying that like without getting putting my psychogeography hat on because i've i've have left it at home um the the (laughs) like the there is obviously like a great resonance and meaning that's contained within buildings within spaces you know that there is a reason why it feels uncomfortable to walk around canary wharf around the areas that, you know, slave rebellions happened and were crushed and, 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 you know, suppressed and see that some of these buildings are, A, the same buildings and they are, B, named after the people that were the major slave traders mm. and, C, there is a fucking statue right in front of them of one of those slave traders mm. honouring him as a great, you know, botanist or, or, or whatever, see our houseplants episode, more of that sort of thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the way that particular spaces are used for for sort of commercial purposes like I'd like, i think something we should do at some point is actually track all of the escape rooms in london and see what mm. buildings they used it i think that'd be a really interesting little project mm. in itself actually the rise of these things is, is interesting in its own right but i think it's significant that it's often industri- ex-industrial buildings that are used for this sort of thing i have just come from this this evening to cashers to record 
them something called Dream Machine, which is a, 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 an alcohol and drug-free psychedelic immersive experience housed in the former Woolwich Market, which is this you know cavernous great building. And I, and I really, it felt very appropriate for what we're recording today to be part of the experiential economy. I mean, I say that was free. I don't know where they got their funding from, but um, mm. it's the sort of thing that is cropping up in our cities more and more. And the, to, to, to come back to the example of the Walter Benjamin escape town, they wouldn't have done that anywhere else. Like, it wouldn't have made any sense to it. It seems like an obvious thing to say. But Port Boo now carries this resonance of being the place where Walter Benjamin very tragically took his own life, where he had this glimmer of sort of, you know, possible redemption and escape and mm. didn't and did not, was not able to seize it through the most extraordinary, like, existentially bad luck, mm. essentially. Because <laughs> as I said before, he, you know, he very nearly... We've been a day earlier or a day later, probably would have been okay. But like the way that Port Boo, I've been to Port Boo before, and it, you know, there's a wonderful memorial towards Benjamin there. There mm. are things like this, this. There is the trail through the mountains to get there. There's a bunch of there's an annual conference, I think, as well. Like that that space, that physical space of the very small town of of Port Boo, is now sort of infused with meaning that has been lent to it by Walter Benjamin's, you know, very tragic demise there. And it's fascinating to me how spaces, physical spaces, it could be a building, it could be a whole town, can take on so much, um, so much meaning through through those, those hist- through any kinds of history, really. But in mm. this case, it's the history of one man, mm. and the Holocaust is a tragedy that affected many millions. But it, somehow, his, um, I think his his case is particularly striking, not so much because he is a, a, a very important, what's a very important philosopher. But because he's sort of somehow emblematic of the of the tragedy of you know those that were killed in the, in the Holocaust, one hundred percent, you know, like and um, he was sort of an exemplar of of many, th- you know, clearly a unique man in many ways, very grumpy yeah. and, and sort of curmudgeonly, and had a unique form of Marxism that philosophy postgrads to this day mm-hmm. continue to try and unpick with, and it sort of continues to be a an amorphous sort of constellation of ideas that's very hard to pin down, which yeah. is what makes it so interesting to try and tackle at the same time. I guess what I think is really important in this instance is the fact that, like, what do you do in a city that faces... that that suddenly... that not Maybe not suddenly, but finds itself uh, with a kind of stream of tourists, mm-hmm. a stream of... Uh, a tourist industry, yeah. but maybe no one to fill it. Yeah. Maybe also no Jewish people that understand the nuances of Holocaust history... How do you and and for people who aren't aren't Jewish, perhaps it's just some philosopher who died in the past. Mm-hmm. How do you? What do you do if you're that town, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's how they have embraced it, like well, like that history. Is, well, I, but so, I think this yeah. is how the nuance of like what happened during that time is lost, mm. and you end up things like like a Walter Benjamin escape town or someone proposing that yeah, yeah. because they don't understand the nuances of him losing his life and him being emblematic, one Holocaust victim Mm. is emblematic of all Holocaust victims because every single person was a person, not just a number, you know? It wasn't just six million. It was, it's not like, it's not that you think, oh, six million, what a huge, like whenever I teach students about this, Mm. six million feels like such a unapproachable number because it's so big. How do you imagine it? Every single person of that six million was one person with hopes, dreams, aspirations, thoughts, feelings, you know? And so learning about the life and times of one of them is, you know, is is a... is a good start but it has well, to, exactly. in, it's but, understood as you know that person had their own individual characteristics which are not just 
being one of the most extraordinary writers and thinkers of the mm. 20th century, but like being a bit of a grump who was always quite ill, you know, like yeah. the, those mundane aspects of his life mm. um, are sort of important as well somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, his you know his suffering isn't any more tragic because he was a great writer. So like for context, in the 1980s, there was pretty much no commemoration of the Holocaust in the UK. Mm. There was like maybe one or two things on TV, like uh, Kitty Goes to Auschwitz with this Holocaust survivor. But like more broadly, there was a a very small memorial in Hyde Park. Mm. Even getting that there uh, was really, really challenging. But then it was really only until like the 90s um, with Schindler's List. But also actually, I do think it's about this coming together of a of Europe, right, together, like, under the European Union, mm. that really shifted um, shifted the way that we think about the Holocaust in the UK specifically. And I think, you know, in a really important way, like, in the UK, like, uh, often we've gone, like, that wasn't our war. We fought the good war against the Nazis. Oh, and we did that, you know, mm. like, oh, we did that to help out Jewish people, which actually is not true at all. Mm. It was literally just to defend Britain's empire. Right. It was not in yeah. any consideration. But often it was framed as something, and I'm using air quotes here, that happened over there. You know, it yeah. happened over in, like, Europe. We, right. Like, Britain was, like, you know, a bastion of, like, of not not anti-Semitism. Of liberal tolerance. Liberal yeah. tolerance. Yeah. There we go. And actually, uh, Tony Kushner wrote a book called The Liberal Imag- uh, The Holocaust and the Liberal Imagination, which is all about how in the UK, specifically, conversations about the nature of the Holocaust, that Mm. it actually did happen to Jewish people, were avoided. And actually, more generally, it was like, oh, this thing that happened in the camps, wasn't it sad? There was very little uh, specific mention um, or, like, real, like, public acceptance of the fact that Jewish people were murdered, that Mm. the Holocaust was was about Jewish people. That's why you're... And anyway. Which is extraordinary. No, it's yeah. fascinating. I mean, I'm going to go on a tangent. I know so. No, no. <laughs> this, is, this, is my, this is my history. Yeah, this yeah. Is... No, it's really it's really important. And I, th- I just think it, I want to chip in and say that it, I find it very shocking that I didn't know how different or lacking like Holocaust, Holocaust memorialization, commemoration mm. was prior to, you're saying, sort of broadly the 90s. Because you assume... It's about age, whatever, like if I'd been an adult in that period, obviously I'd know. But you assume that the way things are are probably the way things have been for some time mm. with a lot of things, right? Like I think if we've got any listeners who are like in their early 20s or late teens, um, they would be well forgiven for assuming that the poppy mania that we see every November, people getting furious about newsreaders not wearing poppies, like mm. cars with like, you know, lorries with like the world's biggest poppy on, like really sort of extra, sort of extravagant displays and so on, that that wasn't the case even 15 years ago, mm. right? Like you and I know this because we all remember from our childhoods and stuff. But it's very easy. To, you assume that sort of these things are done the way they always have been done and that's mm. often not the case, basically. No, yeah. um, and it takes a certain type of shift in, yeah, sort of, I guess, general consciousness slash various political imperatives um, for for these things to start to shift somewhat. And I do think there's an irony here, though, like, you know, in in talking about the Holocaust in this way, because, like, Walter Walter Benjamin had such a difficult and ambivalent relationship with Judaism, right? And that was actually, like, you know, it is kind of... Uh, part of the Nazi lens that anyone who was who they regarded as Jewish, right? Mm. Even if you didn't identify as Jewish yourself, mm-hmm. was then uh, treated in relation to that 
personhood to that personal yeah, identity, yeah. right? So it's so weird even talking about, I don't know, like Walter Benjamin in, con- in the context of his Judaism when mm. I, like we know that he had such a complex relationship with how he understood himself, Absolutely. Right? But that's what, you know, Nazi race science is, is essentially. Yeah. Like, it's, it's that sort of essentialism, isn't it? Yeah, this is this is an episode that's both <laughs> about fun, but it's also quite deep, isn't it? Um, I, think, I think I also want to say about um, the sort of escape room complex that it does reveal something about our cities which i think we've you know touched on briefly our towns and cities that like in a post-industrial economy that everything is becoming ever more gamified like are you familiar with the theater company punch drunk yeah i think um, so not so really though so they i weirdly ended up doing one of the first ever interviews with them when i was at the south london press because they they just graduated from uni like i had and mm were putting on like King Lear in a warehouse for some reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that kind of thing that sort of now seems cliche, but they made it cliche. I mean, they didn't invent like immersive theatre, but they certainly are the most famous company mm-hmm. for it in this country by a very long way. And their projects have got ever more ambitious, ever more absurd. And just, I mean, just like the secret cinema ones that, mm-hmm. you know, I think as far as I know anyway, started fairly small and, each time it gets more expensive, they bring in more people, mm. they need a site that's the same the size of barking to do it. And like, mm. you know, it's it's a it's it's never sort of grander experience. We're instinctively, if I may speak for you as well, Cash, mm-hmm. like curmudgeonly about these sort of these these projects and stuff, whether they are in, entwined in like heritage and difficult histories or not. Um, or whether they're just like entwined in the history of Back to the Future, which let's face it, is not a difficult history. It's a very interesting <laughs> one. Wow, we should do a Back to the Future episode, shouldn't we? <laughs> it's a like, history and a past. It's a future. Yeah, and a it's a great, a great, a great film about you know memory. Marty McFly about memory <laughs> and <laughs> and fate and stuff. And Mar- scientists. And so, sure, yeah, yeah, a bit of it, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess uh, I guess what I want to say about cities is that yeah, the the growth of those of those sort of things that are squarely targeted mm. at, you know, rich young professionals with disposable income is sort of depressing. But at the same time, I don't want to be that curmudgeon and dismiss this stuff out of hand. I don't want to dismiss the gamifying of the city out of hand. Something that Walter Benjamin himself was fascinated in and, and sort of prompted a lot of situationist stuff was sort of, you know, the idea of the flaneur, who is, uh, you know, mm. a, a, a French word for an archetype of somebody who wanders sort of freely and not bound by like capitalism basically not not like just walking on the same path to your train to your job which you hate and then back to the train to via the supermarket back home Mm. every day on the same path but wandering freely in the city probably quite an impoverished artistic person is part, part of the archetype it's also something that like twats put in their in their uh in their twitter bios unfortunately as like i'm a flaneur but like it is a fun thing to be it is being in a new place or in or discovering a place anew for the first time by bringing kind of joy to the city and you know benjamin influenced the situationists of 1960s france a great deal and they were very interested in in games and in the idea of like making the the city into a site of fun rather than just the reproduction of capital for mm-hmm. the benefits of the very rich you know it's a sort of anti-work philosophy as well i suppose mm-hmm. and part of me wants to love all of these projects you know maybe not the water Benjamin escape room but like you know some of the other ones like why shouldn't we just dis- why shouldn't we turn like a factory that 
probably caused a lot of people a lot of misery for a very long time mm. because they had to work fucking horribly long hours and were at risk of being crushed by heavy machinery or having their you know legs amputated, inhaling horrible fumes. That fa- if that factory is now a place that those people's grandchildren can like go and have some fun, then maybe that's actually something we should fucking embrace. You know, mm. like doesn't mean that all the problems are gone from our society or that we should forget the people that worked in that factory mm. and the suffering that they went through or, or that we shouldn't understand the the way that kind of particularly ex-industrial areas of cities often get turned into these spaces mm-hmm. like you know telling me and it's just it's the story of how capitalism has evolved we don't make things in britain anymore we uh, sell experiences we sell experiences instead yeah. you know like okay so in preparation for this episode, I was going through, I've got this box of like all of my treasured things. Yeah. <laughs> and actually in that box was, it was this, do you remember when we went to that lecture at the Stuart Hall Foundation? Oh, it yeah. was really rubbish. Oh my God, it was so bad. <laughs> and it was, it was like, so weirdly self-indulgent. It was really, it was really frustrating and both of us wanted to love it. Oh, yeah. I've actually got the like little flyer from that still. And I'm oh, in my, no in my, way. <laughs> yeah. But I actually, I dug into the box because I was trying to find this thing that a really good friend of mine got from Paul Bo. Um I've just got hair in my pocket and oh. I really am desperate to show you. Wow, what is this? So it's a matchbox, right? But on the matchbox, it says... Um, That's the Water Benjamin Memorial. Yeah, it's I can the Water see. Benjamin. It's by Danny Caravan. Yeah. And it's passages, homage our Water Benjamin, Paul Bo. So look, you can open it. Open the little, it, it open ma- the little cigarette mat, like the it little. It looks matches. like a matchbox, like an old yeah. school matchbox. And then <gasps> oh. it's like a little folded thing, and you can pull it so, out, and it's just like pictures of like oh, wow. boat with like Walter Benjamin quotes throughout. Oh my god, that's so lovely! It is so nice. We're not reading to raise our knowledge, but to raise ourselves from a Berlin childhood. Just like if you ever wanted a little match matchbox, it's like so Walter beautiful. Benjamin what a lovely yeah. little thing. Um, it's not cursed enough to be the cursed object because it's so phenomenal. No, it's like a blessed object. It is more arduous to honour the memory of the nameless than of the renowned. Historical construction is devoted to the memory of the nameless. Well, I mean, that's very relevant to what we're discussing today, as so much of his work is, actually. We haven't really talked about Walter Benjamin's work a great deal because, as we, as I said at the beginning, we'd be here all week. Like, you know, you need a, you need a series for each sort of work almost. But... Um, that idea of like rescuing the forgotten, the mm. marginalized, the people who didn't have voices, the people who, you know, did not get to stamp their authority or their narrative on kind of the telling of a particular bit of history is extremely relevant to to this idea of a Walter Benjamin escape room, because paradoxically he's a famous philosopher who you can buy loads of tat on Redbubble with like <laughs> his face on for some reason. But also like he was someone that most of his life, you know, he had a privileged upbringing and then for most of the rest of his adult life suffered and mm. and, and died a, a very horrible and as a, and completely unnecessary death at the age of, uh, he was 40-something, I think, wasn't he? There's actually, this relates, this wonderful object that Cash has just handed to me, um, reminds me of one of the other objects I was considering as today's cursed object, actually. <laughs> which is, which is, is, so it's a money box, mm. which is obviously a thing that, I don't know, I haven't really thought about the idea of a money box since I was a child and I had a piggy bank. But it's basically a piggy bank and on it is a quote from from Walter Benjamin, so it says. 
And that quote, is, so it literally, like, uh, imagine a large cube with a slot in the top to put your coins in. And it says very clearly on it, quote, history is written by the victors, unquote. Walter Benjamin, little hyphen, Walter Benjamin. He didn't say that. <laughs> it is a quote from someone who was fascinated by the idea of quotations and works tirelessly and with just unparalleled innovation, insight and 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 clarity of, like... Of, of, of thought about history and about what the role of winners and mar- the martyrs and he didn't fucking say it he didn't say it and it's a quote that's often attributed to Winston Churchill who also didn't say it and sometimes to George Orwell who also didn't say it like apparently it's yeah it's not it's not generally known I think who said it it's an aphorism right mm. history's written by the victors it is basically the point it's a good summary of the point he makes mm. at extraordinary length and extraordinary fashion in theses on the philosophy of history which is effectively about, you know, the the march, the victor's march of history mm. being um, the way that histories are normally told and mm-hmm. that, that, like, loads of people join in this great procession. He just always uses these incredible metaphors, this procession mm. where they're carrying, like, these torches and banners of uh, the, the march of the, of the victorious. But he never actually said history is written by the winners. <laughs> Uh, and the fact that you can get it as a money box is just like particularly commodify this ridiculous thing that is sort of fake, completely unauthentic, and yet weirdly does speak to something about his work in a way as well. Oh my god, yeah, maybe that should have been the cursed object, but it's it's uh, it's certainly cursed. But then so's the so's the um, so's the action figure for a man that wrote so much about material culture. Bless you, Walter Benjamin, and happy birthday. Happy birthday, Walt. So I think I mean I think that's enough and uh, about the Walter Benjamin escape room, escape town even. Um, we are going to escape from this podcast recording to the pub. Yeah, we've ga- <laughs> we've gamified our Friday night, and I think I'm confident we're both going to win. Thank you so much for listening, as ever. It's been a, a wild, chaotic journey, as you would as Walter Benjamin would have hoped, I think, in which we've dealt with a lot of serious, quite deep stuff, but also like some quite light hearted stuff as well at the same time as uh, how else could you possibly address an idea as ridiculous as the Walter Benjamin escape town? Well I, I feel like this is our commemoration. Yes. Okay, this is our this is our marking yeah. and like you know it's all about how people do it and like for me yeah. and you like I think to be able to like record this podcast on this day, mm. it feels really special. It's the 130th <laughs> birthday, man. To even it's hang a round out, number. To even hang out with you on this day yeah, yeah. because like I think that like Walter Benjamin stands have to stick together because like, you know, yeah. he was a weird dude and like, but he was an amazing dude. That's it. <laughs> he was a weird dude, but he was an amazing, amazing dude. dude. Little like... hyphen, quotation, cash a tea. You can get that on a money box. It will be on our Patreon soon as a, as maybe, a, as a free item. Maybe we're not as amazing as him, but we're both quite weird. And, just, <laughs> this and amazing. And amazing. Maybe not as much as him, but you know, it's just like, you know, in our own way. And I just, yeah, it just means a lot. So thanks everyone for listening to us. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Um, we will be producing more episodes for both the main feed and the Patreon so feed. So thanks for supporting us. Yeah, really and appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, let any pals know about this if you enjoyed it and you think anyone else needs to know about the stellar work that Benja, Benja Walterman, Walter. She's <laughs> had one beer, listeners, one beer. So I'm getting really emotional that about famous me. famous Polish uh, liquor to- tolerance. No, it's just, it's all emotion. It is, it is. Thanks for listening, guys. Love you lots. Bye. Love you lots. Bye.